This is Steve. It's hard to imagine a more incredible introduction to the world of Hollywood than the one enjoyed by Peter Bogdanovich. As a writer for Esquire and the Saturday Evening Post, Bogdanovich found himself on the set of West Side Story with director Robert Wise. He watched Hitchcock shoot the birds and traveled to Monument Valley where John Ford was directing John Wayne. And that's not all. Jerry Lewis liked him so much, he gave him a whole bunch of his suits and even one of his Mustangs. He had breakfasts with Fritz Lang every Sunday. Howard Hawks was a regular dinner guest, and Orson Welles literally lived with Bogdanovich off and on for years. And it was those relations which formed the foundation of the director he would become. But Peter Bogdanovich loved old Hollywood, and he was determined to honor those great directors while incorporating ideas from the French New Wave and a kind of naturalism that was almost unheard of in American cinema. However, his second film, The Last Picture Show, based on the Larry McMurtry novel, is more than an exploration of cinematic technique. It is a profound, deeply personal, emotionally raw, and unflinchingly honest examination of the loves, losses, secrets, and betrayals that take place in a small Texas town in the early 1950s. This is, without question, one of the great films of the 1970s. And if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend a journey to our website, cinephiles.net, where you can buy or stream The Last Picture Show, along with every other movie we've ever reviewed. And those of you who support the show on patreon.com slash the cinephiles know that occasionally John and I have a few additional thoughts on one of the movies we've discussed. In this case, I realized I wasn't quite done with our discussion of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And I had a few more things to say. So that's a few more thoughts on Guess Who's Coming to Dinner on Patreon and The Last Picture Show, Part 1. This Friday on The Cinephiles. Just remember, beautiful, everything gets old if you do it often enough. So if you want to find out about monotony real quick, Mary Dwine. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hey, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, and host in San Diego, California, and uh, excited to be diving into a movie I have never seen before. One of these rare occurrences, Steve, where I see a movie for the show. It is. It is truly a rare, rare occurrence. Um, uh, and it's funny because this is a this is a lot of at least for me. This was a lot of a movie. We're talking about Last Picture Show. It's in honor of Peter Bogdanovich, who passed away a few weeks ago. And this is our first Peter Bogdanovich movie. Mm-hmm. He is an important filmmaker of that era of the seventies when everything changed. And he led a really interesting life. And I have a lot of feelings about the guy. Um, and <laughs> yeah. so I wanted to just talk a little bit about Peter Bogdanovich before we get into Last Picture Show. Um, he was born in 1939 in the U.S. His parents were there just on a visa. 
They had fled Austria in 1939 to escape World War II. They're Jews, Austrian and Serbian Jews, and they managed to get to the United States where he was born and became a U.S. citizen. Mm -hmm. Um, His older brother died at 18 months old when a pot of boiling soup fell on him. Wow. Which is awful. And Peter, he didn't even know about that he had had an older brother until he was seven. And he didn't know the details of how he died until he was an adult. Wow. Bogdanovich was clearly a precocious kid. At 12 years old, he started to keep a record of every single film he ever saw on little cards. He would write notes. He he saw up to 400 films a year. Wow. And, and this sounds like, you know, it's like what we hear about Martin Scorsese. It's like, one, you know, what are these people who just obsessively, obsessively went to the movies? Mm-hmm. Um, and he says that it was Citizen Kane that made him want to be a director. <laughs> unsurprisingly. Yeah. In 1957, he was studying acting with Stella Adler and some other guy, other people in the acting class. They needed some help with the scene. So he secretly kind of directed them in the scene. They went up and did the scene for Stella Adler. Stella said that was incredible. That was an incredible scene. But it is very obvious to me that you two have been directed, (laughs) directed this scene. And Bogdanovich sheepishly sort of raised his hand and she said, you are a director. (laughs) <laughs> which you know as a young guy you know you're 18 stella adler says you're a director that's pretty cool yeah. um in the very early 60s he starts programming the films for the museum of modern art in new york which is really a big deal you know for this yeah. young guy out of nowhere and of course he is obsessed with the classics of american film of ford and wells hawks mm-hmm. hitchcock and so that's what he starts showing and this is even at a time where some of those people are kind of falling out of favor in the early 60s and esquire uh the saturday evening post and cachet du cinema with a which is the paper from france of the french new wave start asking him to write for them so now he goes from being an actor to programming movies for the museum to writing important articles and film criticism and they even send him out to hollywood yeah because he wants to go meet with these people and he is on the set of Hitchcock's The Birds to talk to Hitchcock. He is on the set with John Ford for Cheyenne Autumn. He's And he's building all these relationships with Howard Hawks, with Orson Welles, and interviewing them. And then he goes back to New York, and basically Hawks has said to him, I mean, he's hanging out with all these great directors. Um, And Howard Hawks says to him, well, look, you say you want to be a director. What the hell are you doing living in New York? Yeah. So he and his wife, Polly Platt, who we're going to get into, talk a lot about her as well. In the middle of the night, they pack up their apartment. They leave New York with a lot of unpaid rent. <laughs> and with $200 in their pocket, they drive to Hollywood. Yeah. And now, because he has this status as a critic, it gets him into all these premieres and events, which he really focuses on going to the ones that have food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because they don't have any money. So he's really eating off of like going to, to a director's guild event and, and filling his pockets at the buffet. That's how Peter Bogdanovich is eating. But wow. clearly the guy had just must've had an amazing personality yeah. because he kept hanging out with all of these great directors like Jerry Lewis, who he became good friends with gave him all his suits <laughs> so that's why Bogdanovich was always impeccably dressed. In fact, Jerry Lewis also gave him his Mustang. 
So he gets a car and all his suits from Jerry Lewis. He's house sitting for all of these famous people of which he says that he and Polly would go into their closets and try on all their clothes and then essentially fuck in every single room of the house. Jesus. So this is the life. I mean, but then also every Sunday morning, he's having breakfast with Fritz Lang. Yeah. You know, another great director. And Fritz Lang turns to Polly and says, listen, you can't trust Peter. He will leave you when he gets the chance. Wow. Yeah. Which uh, is definitely going to come true. <laughs> um, he would frequently have Hawks or John Ford over to his house. Orson Welles, who didn't really have a house in Los Angeles at the time, mm-hmm. was frequently his house guest. Yeah. You know, and this is where all of these interviews and all of this incredible criticism and analysis and stuff that, you know, he wrote about later, you know, came from was his relationships with all these directors. And what's so interesting about him to me is that he really marries the love of old Hollywood mm-hmm. with the French new wave and what's happening in film in the next decade. You know, yeah. mm-hmm. um, he's sitting at a movie premiere and sitting next to him is Roger Corman mm. who recognizes his names. Cause he's read some of the articles that Bogdanovich and he said, Hey, do you want to come work for me? And Bogdanovich goes, sure. And we've heard this story before. Corman, you know, he had him do everything. He was an AD. He was writing. He was, you know, being a line producer. He was doing all this stuff on a couple of movies. And then he says, do you want to direct your own movie? And they come up with this movie, <laughs> Targets, which, have you heard much about how this happened? No. no. Basically, it sounds like uh, Corman had f- like three or four days of work left in a contract with Boris Karloff. So Boris Karloff owes Corman four days of work. They have some footage from some other movie and, and they go, Peter, figure out how to shoot four days with Boris Karloff and use footage from this other movie and turn it into a movie, a complete movie, a complete movie. Oh my God. Which he and Polly, cause they're just, you know, mm-hmm. joined at the hip, work yeah. together to figure yeah. out how to do this. Mm-hmm. And they come up with a movie called targets, which is basically loosely based on the, the Texas sniper at the university of Texas. Wow. Um, and, and, and it's like Boris Karloff watching himself in a movie about this. So he goes to the movie theater. It's like, I've never seen it. It's called targets. It's supposed to be fairly terrible. One of the things I like, by the way, is Corman went up to him and said, you know, a lot about movies and directors, right? He goes, yeah. And he goes, well, you know how Hitchcock would plan everything that he shot and, Bogdanovich says, yeah. And he says, and you know how Hawks wouldn't plan anything and he would just show up on the set and wing it? And Bogdanovich goes, yeah. He says, on this movie, you're Hitchcock. That was <laughs> Corman's advice to Peter Bogdanovich. Um, they worked for 22 weeks. He, they did pre-production, shooting, second unit, cutting, deb- dubbing. And Peter Bogdanovich says that he has never learned as much since. Wow. That that Roger Corman experience was, you know, that was film school. The movie, total flop. Yeah. The next movie is Last Picture Show, which we'll, t- we'll talk about in a minute. Um, obviously, we'll go in detail on that. Yeah. After that, he makes What's Up, Doc? Screwball comedy with Barbara Streisand and Ryan O'Neill. Have you seen it? No, I haven't. And I, I have one of my patrons on the Outlaw Nation, uh, Maria. She has been pushing me for months to watch this film because she says it's excellent. It's a very funny film. And it's one of these 70s films that doesn't get talked about or doesn't get enough press or attention uh, when it should. So I don't know. I've never seen it. I haven't seen it in a long time. My memory is it's really fun. And it's okay. 
totally his tribute to Howard Hawks and the yeah. screwball comedy. Right. Just his last picture show in a lot of ways is his tribute to Orson Welles and mm-hmm. John Ford. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he forms a company with Francis Ford Coppola and William Friedkin called the Director's Company. Crazy. It doesn't sound like any of them got along with each other at all. Of course not. They're all asshole alphas. How would they possibly all get along? Um, and and Coppola makes the conversation with that company. And I forget what Friedkin makes. And he makes Paper Moon, which is an amazing movie. Yes. Right. That is a fantastic film. And then in a lot of ways, that's it for Peter Bogdanovich. <laughs> I mean, he does make some more stuff. He does Daisy Miller, not a success. He does um, Long Lost Love, which is a movie I know nothing about. Is a musical starring Burt Reynolds and Sybil Shepard. It's terrible. Is it? Yeah. I, mean, I would assume. This was during that Burt Reynolds phase where I went to see everything because I was such a fan of his. And that movie was horrific. He's had this relationship with um, Sybil Shepard. Mm-hmm. Their relationship ends. He makes a movie called St. Jack in 1979, which I've never seen, starring Ben Gazzara, which got a lot of critical uh, praise. Mm-hmm. And then he starts a relationship with Dorothy Stratton, oh, who yeah. is a was a Playboy model, mm-hmm. beautiful woman. He does a movie with her called They All Laughed. Mm-hmm. And then she is murdered by her ex-husband. Yeah. It's, and it's, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's the film Star 80. Is right. About that. Yeah. Um, and Star 80 is based on a, um, a Village Voice article mm-hmm. that Bogdanovich hated. Bob Fosse, who directed Star 80, was a friend of Bogdanovich. Like, they had worked together. And Peter calls him up and goes, why are you making this movie? Like, about my life. Yeah. And Fosse's like, well, it's going to be a good movie. And that ended their friendship. <laughs> The movie puts some blame on Peter Bogdanovich as well as some blame on Hugh Hefner. Right. I, I I think I saw it a long time ago, but I have no memory of it. Yeah, I saw it. Yeah, it's it's uh, I wouldn't have a memory of it either. Yeah, yeah. And it sounds like you know Bogdanovich was wrecked, you yeah. know, for years mm-hmm. with this. In 1985, makes his next movie that's successful, which is Mask, mm-hmm. which is a good movie. Yeah, I haven't seen it in a long time. In 91, he does Texasville, which is the sequel to Last Picture Show. Yeah. I had totally forgotten about it. I looked at the trailer as I was preparing for this. What the fuck were they thinking? Same thing they were thinking when they made the Two Jakes sequel to Chinatown, oh which is horrific. This looks, I mean, at least the Two Jakes was attempting to be in the same tone-ish. Right. It's not a good movie. No. Texasville looks like just some weird comedy. I mean, yeah. it just looks, I don't understand at all how you would make that movie. Yeah. The only other movie he, he does really that is he did the cat's meow in 2001, which is an okay. Yeah. You know, film. It's about Hearst and yeah. And Chaplin and, and yeah. yeah. And then obviously this is born from his numerous conversations with Wells about yeah. Kane and about that time for sure. Yeah. Um, and then he gets cast in The Sopranos. Yeah. As a Melfi's psychiatrist. Yeah. He, and he was always, I, what's so funny to me is that the image of him I have is the guy with the, you know, the cravat or whatever, mm-hmm. like looking just like this weird intellectual filmmaker guy. Mm-hmm. And it, what's so strange to me is his best film or his best two films, I would say, which is Last Picture Show and Paper Moon mm-hmm. are totally down to earth sort of films yeah which isn't how he seems to be at all and one more thing i'm going to throw in here which is really weird for you Stephen. i don't know if you have it in your notes is that he ended up marrying dorothy stratton's sister yeah and then his last like theatrical film 
she's funny that way. She co-wrote it with him. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. I knew he married the sister. Yeah. So very strange. And this film stars uh, Owen Wilson and Jennifer Aston in in Imogen Puts. But like, what a a fascinating thing to kind of go from the, you know, sister to the other sister, you know, uh, after the first sister is brutally murdered. It seems like a weird thing to do. But I'm going to have some weird things to say about this movie, Last Picture Show, and the connections to his real life. Oh, yeah. Kind of like Citizen Kane and the connections to Orson Welles' real life. So just kind of, it's interesting because these two guys obviously developed a very strong friendship, as you can yeah. read in that book. This is Orson Welles. So just fascinating to see how that, as he got older, there were patterns here that were repeating uh, about some of the characters in the movie. I, I think that's 100% uh, worth discussing because... Mm-hmm. I mean, frankly, he's a fucked up guy. He is. You know? Yeah. And like, and, and obviously having the woman you love get murdered is going to fuck a person up, but he was fucked up before then. Right, of course. And and I think the, him working stuff out about himself mm. through a movie, but not really, but him still continuing to have those issues. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot here. It's a hubris. Uh, yeah, yeah ab- absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. So, uh, I know how you came to this film. <laughs> yeah. Which is in the last few days. Yeah. Uh, for me, it was in, you know, that time of slowly trying to educate myself about mm-hmm. film. We've talked about like college and right after college was when I really started to get disciplined about it. And I had heard about this movie. I had rented a bunch of other sort of great 70s films. Mm-hmm. Karen and I rented it on VHS, watched it in our apartment in Lafayette, California. And it was like nothing that I expected. You know what I mean? Like I didn't know what to expect and then watch the movie. And it, it messed me up back then. Mm-hmm. And I think I'd only seen it once since then, like maybe 15 years ago and then prepared for it. And there was a lot, you know, there was a lot for me to prepare for on this one. I kind of went back and listened to some parts of easy writer, raging bull, which is, you know, about this era. Mm-hmm. And then I read the book, which is by Larry McMurtry that it's based on. Uh, it's kind of a fascinating book and there's a lot of info on this film. Yeah. I have to say, I liked it. I, I really liked it. And I have resisted this film for decades because I thought it'd be just a boring black and white film about a small town dying or whatever people in a small town. So I didn't think I would like it to be honest with you. And so I, re- that's why I resisted it for so long, but I have to say, after having watched it, I was not bored in any shape, way, shape, or form. And I really enjoyed this movie and the characters. Totally saw what you mentioned earlier, some of the homages to Wells, certainly the homages to Ford, it, oh, yeah. going so far as to put one of Ford's films in the movie or one of uh, the vibe of Ford in the movie and certain some of the characters for sure. But there's so much uh, to look at here, Steve. And, you know, as people should know, Steve texted me a few days ago and was like, I need you to take some space after you watch this movie and really probably I want to talk about it. So clearly Steve's got a lot to discuss on the show and I'm very interested to hear what his points of views are and we'll, and then uh, throw in my two cents on a lot of this stuff. Cause I, this film had a lot more depth than I initially gave it credit for from the outside. And when I watched it, there is so much to savor and enjoy in this movie. So if anyone's listening, who has resisted watching this movie, I can't encourage you enough to watch it. Really, it's not what you think it is. It's so funny. I, I did text John. It is something in literally five plus years. I've never sent that yeah. text. I was nervous about sending it because I didn't want 
junk. I didn't want him to feel like I was saying, Hey man, you got to really don't, you know, don't be late. You know, like, I didn't want that. I was just like, I watched the movie and then I had to sit. I could, I took me some time to process like, and I've had, I've had a week and a half to process this thing. And I'm still kind of going, I was just reading through my notes this morning going, man, I saw, there's a lot of stuff here that I don't know how I feel about it. You know, like it doesn't, it, it, and this is why I think this is a, as seventies, a movie as you can have. Absolutely. And, and right at the beginning of this seventies explosion of movies that we're going to have, I mean, this film was in the same year as French connection for God's sake. Yeah. So just crazy to think about. And, um, you know, I, I, I mentioned the text to my girlfriends who were driving yesterday to the, to the store. And she was just like, Oh, I think it's because Steve just wants to talk to you about it right now. He just wants to. <laughs> and so hearing you say that you sat with these thoughts and you wanted, you didn't know what to do with them. Absolutely. It kind of feels that way as well now. So, and I said to Steve, I texted him back. I said, that's what our show does best, man. So I think yeah. we're going to have fun discussing it all. It, it's so funny. We just did guess who's coming to dinner, which yeah. is so the end of the previous era. And, and guess who's coming to dinner? It is 100% clear what that movie's about. Yes. It is asking a very specific question. And by the end of the movie, we will answer that question. This movie, and this yeah. is why I say it's a 70s film. I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's about a lot of stuff. Yeah, it is. And how you're supposed to, it's not telling you how you're supposed to feel about it. You know, it's like, here's some stuff. Yep. Um, here's some pre-production of how this came about. So uh, Bogdanovich says that he was at a drugstore and saw the paperback book, saw the title, picked it up put it back decided you didn't want to yeah. read it then salminio gave the book to him and said you should really read this and salminio wanted to be in it but felt he was probably too old and he just handed it off to polly didn't read it polly read it his wife right. loved the book and said for her she'd grown up in the midwest she's like this was the most true thing about how she grew up of anything she had ever read yeah from her small town in the Midwest. Then uh, Bob Rafelson, who's a name that hasn't, we haven't talked about this guy very much. No. He, he is one of the key directed five easy pieces, but his company um, of BF, BFS Productions, I forget what it is, mm -hmm. um, is just key to the late 60s and early 70s. Mm -hmm. One of the things, by the way, he's the guy who created the monkeys. <laughs> um, so he goes to his partner and right after seeing Targets, the movie he did, Bogdanovich did for Corman and says, I just saw a movie that sucks, but the guy who made it knows how to make movies. Wow. Uh, which is quite a compliment. And they say, basically they make a deal to do this book. The last picture show, he offers 75 grand to Bogdanovich upfront, a million dollars to make of the movie. And their main only requirement is it must have nudity, <laughs> which this movie certainly has. It does. <laughs> um, and, uh, there's one story that he, when he made the deal, he hadn't even read the book. Wow. I don't know if that's true because I heard a bunch of sort of contradictory things. Mm -hmm. But this story says the reason he said yes was that it sounded like it was a movie that was going to be about movies, which is what he knows the most about. Wow. Then he reads the book and goes, I'm a New York Jew. I, this is as distant from my life experience <laughs> as anything possible and got real scared about having to make this film. Yeah. And his goal was to combine honesty nudity and naturalism with john ford and orson wells with the french new wave that's the that's the goal yeah and at the time orson was staying at bogdanovich's house and and he says look i really want to get the kind of depth of field you had in citizen kane and orson wells says well you got to shoot in black and white then because the way the lenses work at that the the 
color film isn't fast enough to get that kind of depth of field. Wow. And he goes, yeah, but I mean, they're, they're, nobody's making black and white movies at this point. There hadn't been a major studio release in black and white for like five years. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And Orson says to him, have you ever seen a great performance in color? Which is such an Orson Welles kind of statement. Of course. Of course. So he goes to the producers and sells them on black and white. Polly is working with him on the script, working off on the costumes. Larry McMurtry, who wrote the book, is writing, working on the script with him. And it sounds like McMurtry wrote most of the dialogue and Bogdanovich was more about the structure. What's weird about that statement is I've read the book. This book is exactly the structure of the movie. Yeah. So it makes me go, what did Bogdanovich write? <laughs> you know? Wait, are you telling me that an, a director overinflated their contribution to that doesn't sound right to a film? No. I, I it's I, not only am I telling you that. I was trying to make a joke, but I didn't have a good one. Nothing came to my <laughs> mind. But we're going to get to some stuff later that is yeah. even more so that stuff. Um, and they go off to scout locations, and Larry McMurtry says, "You really should just shoot it in my hometown, Archer, Texas. That's where I wrote it about. That's the, all the locations are there." And Bogdanovich totally resisted it. He was like, no, no, we'll look at every other places in Texas. I, my only guess on that is that yeah. he didn't want to give McMurtry too much power. You know what I mean? No surprise. But, yeah. Like, again, the history of directors and writers and this feeling of, and especially because he's a young kid yep. in a way wanting to prove himself. So ha giving McMurtry too much power, maybe felt he'd be bullied and he wouldn't get the credit he deserves or wants in this pursuit and endeavor. So they drive all over Texas. They look at all sorts of small towns. And then they end up at Archer City, Texas. And Peter goes, well, this is perfect. And Larry goes, yeah, I told you so. And that is where they shot the film. Yeah. Would you like to get into the last picture show? Let's do it, my man. All right. So it opens up. We see a black and white version of the Columbia logo and then a big, huge title that is silent. And this is the first homage to Citizen Kane. Yep. And we're looking just at an old movie theater called the Royale in this small town. It is empty. It is dusty. It is windy. And we're just going to look at it for a little while. Yeah. And then we hear a car backfire and we're in this old truck and the guys work in the choke and we get to meet Tim Bottoms, who plays Sonny. Uh, the other person up for this part, by the way, John Ritter. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. I could see it working at a, for a young John Ritter, totally. What's really crazy about it is that it wasn't just John Ritter auditioning. It was John Ritter and his dad, Tex Ritter, who wrote Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling, the Western song in High Noon. Yeah. And he was coming in to audition for Sam the Lion. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. But we went with Tim Bottoms, who's like, where he's got messy hair, he's in denim jacket, he's in cowboy boots, and he's listening to the radio. Uh, the radio is the only score, is radio and records. Yeah. There's no score in this film. I will say something real quick, Steve. Yeah. You can analyze this film through the songs that are playing throughout the movie. 100%. Soundtrack. You can also analyze the point of this movie through the movies that are playing throughout this movie on the marquee. Father of the Bride, I think, is what we see right off the bat yep. on the marquee in the opening. So what is that? That is a father handing off his daughter to start a new life. The father's role ending in her life as she embraces a new life. This idea of that also representing old Hollywood, Father of the Bride, and what we're going to be getting in these, on, in these films that are showing at the picture show uh, are kind of setting the stage in a really low key way 
about what we're going to be getting in the film and what we're showing about a change in not only in the country in the 1970s, but also at that time, right after World War II in the 1950s. That, that is a great point. And I hadn't thought about, I was thinking about Father of the Bride for other reasons, but mm. that's a really good one I hadn't thought of. Um, and the first thing Sonny sees as he drives into town is this kid that is sweeping in the middle of the street. <laughs> uh, and this is Billy. And he's played by Sam Bottoms. Yeah. Um, and this is how this happened. They'd originally ca cast someone else to play Billy. And Sam was just visiting the set one day. And Bogdanovich looked at him and said, who are you? And he says, well, I'm Sam Bottoms. He's like, oh, do you act? He's like, I don't know. He's like, well, do you want to act in this movie? <laughs> and he fires the kid that plays Billy. He basically says, can you take your braces off? And, and the kid says, well, I'd have to ask my mom. And they take his braces off. And that's how he becomes Billy. Hmm. And he gets in the car uh, with Sonny, who flips his hat around. Yeah. And they smile. And Billy's never going to say a word in this movie. And this hat thing is going to be something that's going to come back and come back and come back. Real quick. I mean, Sam Bottoms, for those of you who don't know, that's Lance from Apocalypse, Apocalypse Now. Now. All grown, I mean, that's him as a kid there. But he ends up being Lance in, uh, in uh, Apocalypse. So I didn't know that as I was watching this movie and then randomly did look on his name. And I was like, oh, my God, he looks so yeah. different. So, yeah. Perfect. And it's just like five years later, probably yeah. that he's that he's doing Apocalypse Now. And they pull up to a pool hall and go inside. And this is, in fact, the pool hall that the story's based on. This is the real place, you know. And the thing is, there's a lot of my understanding. These are based on real people. Yeah. I mean, it's a work of fiction, but there's a lot of reality here, too. Mm -hmm. And we get to meet Sam the Lion, Ben Johnson. So Ben Johnson, ben we Johnson. just talked about him in Shane. Yeah. He's a big John Ford actor. He did not want to do this part. What? He was totally against it. Peter asked him multiple times. He's like, that movie's too dirty. It's too, you know, I can't have my mom watch this movie. There's <laughs> no way. And so, you know, how Bogdanovich gets him to do the movie. How? Calls up John Ford. What? It says, John, Ben won't do my movie. John Ford calls up Ben Johnson and says, what do you want to be the Duke sidekick for the rest of your life? <laughs> and basically insists that he does the movie. And Peter tells him, look, I promise you're going to win the Oscar for this. Wow. Yeah. Um, ben, John Ford here. What do I hear this? You're not going to do this. <laughs> Ridiculous. What are you, John Wayne sidekick for the rest of your life? Do the movie, you idiot. Um, I can only imagine that conversation. <laughs> totally. And we're inside uh, this pool hall, which is, we got to say, this is the opposite of movie sets. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Like this is just a real worn down, dirty, real place. Yeah. I, yeah. Go yeah. Ahead. Steve, having grown up in Southern Virginia and seen the different places, I mean, this, this film really struck me because of some of the towns I've stopped off in or some of the towns I've been in visiting friends yeah. uh, from college, my first trip to college or visiting girlfriends and their towns like, it's fascinating. Or driving from Florida State back to Virginia, you see certain towns. Or when we drove cross country, we drove through Texas and hit a couple of these towns that reminded me of something like this. And it's just, it's you think it's something from the movies until you see it in real life. And the way they captured it here is so authentic. Um, and you just go, wow, just what kind of life this must be, you know? Well, I think that's what's so interesting it's like there, there's so little life in the town. Yeah. That everything is the internal struggle. You know, everything is the these people striving for happiness. Yeah. In this really bleak 
place yeah and striving in all sorts of these unwise ways mm-hmm. you know um one interesting things but obviously you've been listening to cinephiles long enough you know we spoil everything yeah um sam the lion is dying and what's so interesting they never say anything about it mm-hmm. you know like he is going to die in the course of this film sorry to spoil that <laughs> but what's so interesting right at the beginning is you see him drinking like cough syrup mm-hmm and you would never notice it watching it the first time. You know what I mean? Or you'd notice it, but you wouldn't think about it. And in fact, there are all these little clues that he knows he's really ill. Yeah. But nobody else knows. Um, and the first thing that happens, first of all, it's obvious that Sonny is here all the time. It's obvious that Billy is someone that is under Sam's wing. Mm-hmm. And then the first thing we get is some jokes about the football game. Surprised you had the nerve to show up this morning after that stomping y'all did last night. You know, Sonny's in high school. He's on the football team. They are clearly terrible. You football teams have had some luck with tackling. Keeps the other team from scoring quite so often. Sounds too rough for me. I love that that comes back over and over again. Over over and over again. Y'all can learn to do some tackling. Which is what's so great about it is you immediately get what this relationship is. Uh And then in walks a a roughneck, a guy who works out on the oil wells. This is Abilene. He's played by clue Gulager. Mm -hmm. This guy has been acting forever. Yeah. (laughs) He is in once upon a time in Hollywood. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Like if you look at his IMDb, it's, I don't know if it's 300 things. I mean, just TV movies. He's done stuff forever. And he comes in, takes his case from behind the counter because his pool cue is already there mm-hmm. and then just stares at Sam in this long moment. And what we find out is Sam bet on the high school football team and has <laughs> lost his money to this guy. You see, this is what I get for betting on my own hometown ball team. I ought to have better sense. Wouldn't hurt you had a better hometown. Outside, up pulls a truck and there is Dwayne. Jeff Bridges. Yeah, see, I went into this movie thinking this was a Jeff Bridges, Sybil Shepherd movie. Mm. It is not. It is. No. They're in it. Don't get me wrong. And certainly they have strong storylines to play within their own storylines. But like, oh, this is very much um, Timothy Bottoms movie and uh, even Cloris Leachman's movie to a way and Sam's movie. So it's just fascinating that I went in thinking it was one thing. And it was completely something else. It, it's first of all, it's clearly an ensemble, yes, you know, sure. and, and second of all, I think Tim Bottoms is at the center of the ensemble. Yes. Yes. But he's, it's not like his part is, his part is bigger than Jeff Bridges, right? but it's, you know, the, each one of them, when you're in each one of their worlds, it's pretty involving, you know, it is. I just feel more of a connection to Timothy than I do uh, Jeff Bridges or Sybil Shepherd in their roles in the movie. But I think, we'll, uh, well, I think that is, as it's as it's supposed to be yeah. you know what i mean yeah. i mean john if you had said i just felt so connected to sybil shepherd's character i would be really <laughs> kind of worried about you i mean i've <laughs> had my sex let me just say that when i was younger so anyway we'll get to it <laughs> now i'm picturing you standing on a diving board i'm not saying that hasn't happened <laughs> at uh, y2k in uh, in uh, st augustine but that's a different story for another <laughs> <day>. that, that'll <laughs> be a cinephile short at some yeah, point right. um <laughs> And and so and then they head off. They're going to head over to the diner and uh, Sam the Lion tosses them some change in a bag and they start playing football with it. Mm-hmm. And this fun sort of long shot as they go across the street. And I love basically all the townspeople. Those are just locals. They're not actors. And it's really obvious. Look at that, Larry. They can catch. Five to Thunder Bridges, aren't they? 
Wish I could tackle. <laughs> and they go into this uh, crowded diner. This, by the way, is the, the only set they built for the whole movie. This is built inside a store. Wow. Everything else is location. Um, and there is Eileen Brennan, who plays Genevieve. Yeah. And just such a different role than I'm used to her. You know, mm-hmm. Bogdanovich saw her on Broadway in a comedy and said she was hilarious. And basically, he, his thinking was, well, if she can do comedy, she can do anything. <laughs> Which I think is pretty smart, actually. I used to get Eileen Brennan and Ellen Burstyn confused all the time in the 80s and 90s. Like, all the time. They just because of the EB in their initials right. and they kind of look a little bit similar. And so I just used to get I, I, I for the longest time. I thought Ellen Burstyn was in uh, Sting or Private Benjamin. Oh, Private Benjamin. Was sure. Eileen Brennan in The Exorcist right. for the longest time. So you want to pick up first tonight? Nah. I'll be getting first over Saturday night. Uh, it's kind of yours, you know. Go ahead. And for some reason, we don't know what this is. And this is the thing about this movie. Part of why it's such a 70s film. We don't get any explanation of what the hell's going on. Right, right. You know, you're just kind of dropped into this world and they're talking about the pickup truck and Sonny's clearly doesn't care that much about getting the pickup truck first. They talk about he's got deliveries to make and he says, I'll be lucky to get back for the second show. (laughs) Um, We see later on he's delivering some propane. We hear the song. Hey, good looking. It's a great soundtrack, by the way. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, And then it's night and we arrive at the movie theater. I love, by the way, so there's Miss Mosey, who's the woman at the counter, at the ticket yeah. counter. She's a, this is, the movie's populated by these great smaller characters. Hope you don't want no popcorn because they ain't none. And you missed the newsreel too. And the main show's done started. So I'll just charge you 30 cents. If only the whole world worked like that. Right? But yeah. And he goes inside to the movie and there are two girls sitting next to each other. He taps one on the shoulder and they move over and he sits down next to his girlfriend, which is Charlene Duggs, played by Sharon Taggart. Mm -hmm. And she is not happy with him because he is late. (laughs) I decided you had a wreck. Mm. By the way, the other girl with her, that really is uh, Sharon Taggart's sister, who plays her sister in the movie. (laughs) Um, And they move up towards... The back of the theater, because we're going to have some makeout time. We see Billy is up in the balcony above them. Mm-hmm. And I love that she takes her gum out because it's time to make out. Yeah. Those are the days, man. Those yeah. are the days. And they lean in and it's just, this is perfectly shot because yeah. kissing her. And as you said, the movie that's playing is Father of the Bride. Yeah. And by the way, the reason Bogdanovich picked it was he wanted to show something that was just the opposite world. Yeah. Well, and the thing that I was thinking about too is this is all about finding true love and mm-hmm. st- you know and stability and 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 relationships that make sense and that's the opposite of what's in this movie mm-hmm. they start kissing and sunny is kissing charlene and looking at elizabeth taylor yeah and it's just so perfectly clear how not romantic this is oh and one thing i should say that charlene tells him is it's their anniversary what We've been going steady a year tonight. Yeah. Seems like a lot longer. Yeah. And she's like, you know, did you get me something? He's like, well, I could get you another stick of gum. <laughs> That's all I got. Yeah. And this, it, you know, this is, it's again, these are people that are trying to figure out who they are. They're young people in this town. And with him, like look at Elizabeth Taylor. That's the clue there, right? That he's not, like you said, Steve, not with the right person. And later he'll stare at Sybil Shepherd when she comes in. And uh, then eventually they'll just break up because that just seems like the logical thing to do at that in that moment. And that's the thing. It's like, okay, you try something out, but it's you keep it around for 
like male or female, right? Whatever way you stay in this thing for now, because you're like, ah, I don't know what else to do with it. And eventually the line crosses and you're like, yeah, I need to get out of this situation. And that's what happens. I think it's just so honest about how people actually are. Yeah. Yeah, you know exactly. I mean, I'm I'm sure that you've had the experience of being kissing someone where you go, "Why? What am I doing here?" Yeah, and vice versa, where yeah. the person has felt that kissing me. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And I think particularly at that age, like you so yeah, want a girlfriend. Yeah, and this, and you have one. Yeah, you know, it just ain't the one you want. But it just ain't the one you want. And speaking of the one that you want. In walks Sybil Shepherd and Dwayne. Yeah. Uh, they walk in below the movie theater screen, and the shot of her coming towards them and leaning in is just a gorgeous shot of her. What y'all doing back here in the dark? We're going to talk a lot about her character in this film because mm-hmm. she is a she's a difficult person. Yeah, as as Prince once said, the beautiful ones always smash the picture, always every time. So it's it's a. She's an interesting character throughout this film, for sure. Well, and and she both smashes a whole bunch of pictures in this film. Yeah. And she smashes a picture outside of this in the real world, too. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, so uh, basically, when they're casting the film, Bogdanovich is going, we need someone who's spectacular looking that has a certain kind of very American, very specific kind of look. Yeah. And Sybil Shepard's a model, and he sees her on the cover of Glamour and says, that's the girl. Let's get her. They bring her into a meeting. She's never acted before. Bogdanovich immediately asks to see her naked, uh, which they refuse. And she comes in in a bikini. Mm-hmm. It's funny. Marion Doherty, who's like the great casting director, she is not listed on as the casting director on this film. But she was definitely involved. Because yeah. what she said, she said she thought Peter was in love with Sybil from the moment he met her. Mm. Um, Always a dangerous thing. Yeah. Well, I'm yeah, and well, and this is where again we go with like Orson Welles mm-hmm. and like Rita Hayworth or you know these directors yeah. falling in love with their leading ladies. Yeah, and at this time, of course, by the way, Polly Platt, Peter's actual wife, is pregnant. <laughs> um, Ugh, yeah. So Dwayne and J.C. sit down in front of uh, Charlene and Sonny, and they start making out. And the way that he films their kissing is entirely different from how he filmed. The kissing with Sonny and Charlene. Yeah. And now, what is Sonny watching? It's not Elizabeth Taylor. He's watching JC. I don't see why they should get the pickup first all the time. What's so great about it is this answers the question of why was Sonny not caring about who got the pickup the first time? Right. Because he's not in love with Charlene. Right. He deep down knows that's not the right relationship. Yeah. Everyone's exiting the theater, including Sam. Billy is just out sweeping again. <laughs> It's so funny how this strange thing they introduce becomes so painful later Mm -hmm. in the film. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And now it's time we've headed off to this pond, which they call the tank and it's Sonny and Charlene. And it's so obvious that, Oh, we're here to go make out to fool around. Mm -hmm. So first of all, there's a lot of nudity in this film. It was very shocking in 1971, but what's more shocking to, I think is how boring the nudity is. Yes. See, that's a great point. That struck me too as I was watching it. This nudity is not presented in a way to fetishize it, Nope. in my opinion, or in a way to make it seem sexual. And you might say, oh, as a woman, you might have a different take. That's fair. But as a straight male, and Steve's saying it as well as another straight male, 
Like, I wasn't turned on by anything I saw in this movie, including Sybil Shepard being naked, including the undressing moment, because that's played for real uncomfortability and almost violation, uh, a visual violation of a woman's uh, uh, private areas. And so to me, uh, as I was watching this film, I was really struck by how, um, uh, yeah, boring is a great word, but also like just sexless. The sex actually is, or the attractions even the kissing is awkward at times and like clumsy. And so just, it's fascinating how he's approaching this uh, part of um, the stories that are here in the film. Well, and that is exactly what Bogdanovich's intention was, Mm -hmm, is that mm -hmm. he wanted it to be normal, ordinary, just real life. And, and the fact is, Sonny's not into Charlene. Charlene's not really into Sonny, you know? And so there isn't any, sexual energy here yeah and it's just so and it's and it's so funny i mean there was very little nudity in american films and certainly no like you know fondling going on in american films at this time which is what we see you know she takes off her top they hang the bra on the rearview mirror which polly platt said that was a hundred percent her youth in the midwestern town like that's kind of normal he warms his hands up and it's just bogdanovich thought it was funny basically this scene and that and it this really is a test on how you look at things whether or not you find it funny right but it definitely is not that sexy and she says and he goes takes that as a challenge and he reaches down between her legs which she stops you said this was our anniversary let's do something different well i like that you cheapskate. Didn't even get me an anniversary present. Now you want to go and get me pregnant. Oh, my gosh. Charlene, it was just my hand. Yeah, one thing leads to another. <laughs> and they start getting dressed. And I think it's real clear that if she had had sex with him, he would not have broken up with her. Oh, yeah. I I, I don't know. That's all. I don't even make let it me put, Let me put it a different way. Let me put it a different way. Well, I think yeah. the fact that she says no in the way that she does is what makes him break up with her. Maybe. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know. I never got that. To me, it just seemed like, okay, yeah, if we're not going to do this, then let's, let's just be done with it anyway. Cause like there's, I'm not interested anyway. Yeah. yeah. So I see your point though. It does make sense. And it, it and honestly, we, we all want to break up with Charlene. <laughs> Charlene is not a fun and what's so crazy is in the moment before they're talking about you know she says there'll be plenty of time for that when we get married right right. and her and this is this weird small town thing they're not that many people yeah you know and so Charlene who doesn't like Sonny I think already just believes that she's going to marry him Right, and this 1950s, right? And yeah, it's like 51. There's 51. There's a nice relig- there's a religious aspect to it all. And you're right, the small town, this is just what you do, right? And we find what's great about the movie is that we have different generations of men and different generations of women who have experienced the things that Charlene is talking about. And when we get to JC's mom when Eileen uh, sorry Ellen Burstyn what she talks about and what she went through as a young bride and an older bride all the stuff she goes to Cloris Leachman's character the same thing like this idea of getting married at a young age it seems appealing it seems like that's what you're supposed to do but there's a whole other world out there that you don't you can't even glimpse in your in your 20s or early teens or late teens Sonny ends up back at the diner after the breakup with uh, Genevieve, which is Eileen Brennan. So one thing that I should point out is that in 1992, Bogdanovich did a director's cut. Mm. 
And that is the cut that we're looking at. Yeah. I saw, yeah, the two, uh, the two hour and whatever, eight minute cut. Yeah. Yeah. There's about seven minutes of stuff they put back in. And this is one, you know, we talked about director's cuts other times where they seem to be cash grabs and mm-hmm. kind of prefer the original. I can't imagine watching this without this extra footage. Yeah. I like yeah. The, uh, the footage. It didn't seem like it was added on at all. No. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the scenes that was not in the original. Hope you ain't down the mouth about Charlene. I ain't blue about her. You don't have a good disposition. What are you blue about then? Ain't nobody to go in this town. Jace is only pretty girl in school and Dwayne's got her. And Genevieve, who clearly has got some wisdom on her, says, Jace, you're bringing more misery and she'll ever be worse. Which is certainly true. Yeah. Throughout the film, yeah. And then what we hear is a little bit about dad and that Dwayne has a mom but they're both living in a boarding house and this was cut out and Bogdanovich always wanted it back in because he felt there needed to be some explanation of why Dwayne and Sonny are living where they are why they're there where are the parents you know mm-hmm. we're at school uh Jonathan Hellerman is the teacher <laughs> yeah this is his first movie really yeah Where's the macadamia nuts? I don't right. he's got uh, macadamia nuts next to I love that the book they're passing around is I the jury which mm. is, for the time, a pretty sexy book. I wonder what my chances are this morning of interesting you kids and John Keats. No, at all. <laughs> and he reads a Keats poem at the end. When old age shall this generation waste, thou shalt remain in midst of other woe than ours, a friend to man, to whom thou sayest, beauty is truth, truth, beauty. That is all ye know on earth and all ye need to know. Why do you think that quote is in this movie? Well, I think that's kind of the anthem of of the French New Wave and the anthem of what he's trying to maybe convey here is there is a beauty in the truth, even if the truth is difficult to look at, the truth is difficult to experience, or your truth is growing up in a small town like this with little to no access to getting out of it. There is still a beauty in it if you can find it, if you can look for it. Uh, and also the nightingale is the other one that he references earlier. And that's a, 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 a poem about a incredible experience that the read or the viewer goes on through the poem uh, initiated by the song of a nightingale. And by the end of that poem, you don't know if it's been a vision or a dream. It's otherworldly. And in a way, this uh, film kind of symbolizes how we look back on our times if we ever get out of a small town, mm. it seems like, oh, you can have you can be misty eyed or nostalgic or think it was a vision or a dream, depending on how your points of views are about your upbringing and where you grew up in, in terms of the towns. So just fascinating having Keats kind of weaved into this um, uh, film that is deceptively seen as kind of simplistic film about the end of a certain era and the beginning of a new one. There's more going on, Steve, as, as you've mentioned in text and now on the show as well. The, the, those are great points. And it's always this is exactly not the thing I was thinking of. It, it, that's <laughs> so because I wasn't thinking as much about Nightingale. And yeah. you're totally, totally right. The thing that I keep bumping on is this phrase, beauty is truth and truth mm-hmm. beauty. Mm-hmm. And it's like there's so much seeking after beauty in this movie. Mm-hmm. And one could say that the most beautiful character is JC physically. Sure. And sure. the least truthful. Yes. Right. You know, exactly. and then you have a character like Ruth, Cloris Leachman's character who there's the most truth. I think there, do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. like if you, and it's this is why I keep going back to is like, 
there's one idea that, oh, in physical beauty, in the, in the visual beauty is truth. But yeah. another idea is that in truth, that is what true beauty is. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I think about JC and I think about Ruth. Yeah. And I also think about Sam the Lion and Lois. You know what I mean? With these, like, because it's very clear later on, Sam the Lion and Lois shared moments of real truth mm-hmm. and beauty. And in the midst of the hearing this very romantic poetry, we have a hard cut to a big basketball coach yelling, Run, you little pissant, run! Cover it out, cover it out, you gotta be men like the rest of them. This is the actual high school gym at the town. They were, when they saw what the movie was, they were not pleased. Yeah, I bet. And there were some people in the small town that were really happy to have a film crew shoot there, and some that were really, really not. So this is Coach Popper. And he is as classically male, macho, asshole coach from that era as you could imagine. Don't let jack off so damn much. Maybe you can stay in shape. And as the practice ends, there's one young basketball player that runs by him who gets who the coach slaps on the ass. Do you know who that is? Who he slaps on the ass? Yep. Uh, no. Who is that? So uh, when... Peter Bogdanovich worked on targets. He had a great location scout Mm -hmm. and that location scout came and worked with him on last picture show and played this small part. And that location scout is Frank Marshall. Oh, how funny. The one of the most successful producers of all time, Steven Spielberg movies. Right. That is the, that is that guy. Really? Yeah. The other thing, and again, I'm ruining things that are subtle in the film, and it's even somewhat subtle in the book, although not quite as subtle in the book. Yeah. The real implication is that Coach Popper is uh, gay and that is having affairs with his students, mm. male students. Right, right. And it's just so lightly touched on in the film. Yeah. It never makes a thing out of it. And yeah. I would say most people watching the movie probably wouldn't catch it. You know, it's fascinating, Steve. 1971, this film comes out. It's not only risque for the nudity, right? It's also risque for the subjects that are being presented. Here oh, yeah. That are like, even in 2022, people are still trepidatious about making a movie about a characters like this or about subjects like this. So it's fascinating to see it all kind of come together in this. Because later we have that scene with the preacher's son in the car with the young girl, with the, the, oh, yeah. you know, the adolescent girl. It's like, oh, my God. And so it's just like, this is f- so interesting that he was able to get away. But again, this is kicking off the 70s. Right. We really delve into some really difficult subjects and see the ugly side of America portrayed in in, in these films. Well, it's funny. There was something uh, in the old Hayes Code, which we talked about in the past, is that mm-hmm. You could have bad people in a movie, but the bad people had to have a comeuppance. Right. You know what I mean? Like they had to be punished. Evil. You could never get away with evil. And that gets thrown out. And this movie is like there's all sorts of bad stuff. Right. You know what I mean? And it just it's just saying, here's this thing. Right. And that's it. They're not they're not, you know, Coach Popper doesn't get arrested at the end of this movie. He doesn't. No. But he does Um, lose his wife. I don't think he I don't know if he loses his wife. He loses her to him in terms of love. But he never had her. I mean, like, well, th- we'll get to that. There's yeah. a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff about. I think Popper. everyone gets a little bit of a comeuppance, but then not a big one. Yeah. Um, and Popper pulls aside Sonny mm. and asks him to do him, him a favor. And he says, My old lady's got to go over to the doctor and all of it tomorrow. You know, women, there's always something wrong with them. Right away. 
I don't think you like Coach Popper that much. <laughs> now, if you'll do this for me, I'll get you out of civic class. I'll be glad to. That's the best offer I've had all day. You tell her you got to get back in time for practice so she won't stay in there too long. So here's my Steve Morris question. Yes. Why do you think he asked Sonny to drive his wife to the doctor? Why he, Sonny of all people? Well, so A, I think he hates his wife. Well, sure. And I think his wife has been deeply depressed for a long time. Right. That's fair. But why Sonny specifically? Mm. Why not another kid in the class? Another senior? Uh, that is a good place. question. Could it be because he's the main character in the movie? Yeah. Boom. This is what I, this is a little bit like I was watching. <laughs> I was like, specifically, why? Is he the only one in town with a truck? Is he the only one that can drive at his age that isn't, you know, like I, I would love to know what that's all about. So uh, uh, I will give you an answer. That is, is, I don't think this is the right answer. Okay. I don't think Sonny's a very good athlete. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he is too. They can't tackle. Yeah. He can't. Yeah. Well, and and like I think Dwayne is a better athlete than Sonny because Dwayne yeah. played in the black in the backfield. Sonny played on the line in the football games. Yeah. I mean, I don't think Charlene. any of them are particularly good at. Uh, Charlene says that when they break up, Steve, you you're not even in the backfield. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think maybe also Sonny might he might see him as more safe. Maybe. Yeah. Okay. Um, but that is a really good question. I'm going to have to keep thinking about it. We are in uh, another scene that was cut out of the movie, which is we're in JC's convertible and we're with Sonny and Dwayne mm -hmm. and they're making fun of Coach Popper and they break into the school song. Anarene High School, we love you, love you ever so grand. We will always be so loyal to our man. I totally am happy this is in the movie. Yeah. Because it's like a, almost like, oh, they are friends. It's almost like a joyful moment, you know? Yeah. Teenagers make fun at that age, especially when they're about to graduate. Teenagers make fun of that whole concept of high school. So it totally makes sense. Um, by the way, as they're driving along, a, a dog chases after the car. Mm -hmm. That's just a local dog that chased after the car. That was not planned at all. And I think it was... <laughs> Peter was talking to one of these director's guys, and I think it was John Ford, who basically went, look, if a dog randomly runs in your shot, that's the good shot. <laughs> We're sitting at like a, you know, a drive-in kind of place, and uh, JC's feeding uh, Dwayne a very soggy fry because they didn't actually have time to cook them. Which <laughs> is kind of gross. Uh -oh. You better watch it. Here comes your mama. And they sit up as a car drives into frame, and Lois, Ellen Burstyn, drives right into a close-up. Stacey, we're having supper at home tonight. I expect you there in 15 minutes. You hear? First of all, that is a great introduction to a character. Yeah. Here's how she got in the films. She So she'd done tons and tons of TV. But this, I think, is her first big movie role. And okay. uh, Bogdanovich wanted her for Ruth Popper, that Cloris Leachman plays. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And she came in and said, I really want to play Lois. And he goes, well, I'll read you for both. She reads for both of them. And then he goes, I really want you to play Ruth, but you read well for Lois, so I'll leave it up to you to decide which part you play. When Cloris Leachman auditioned, he wanted her to play Lois. And oh, Cloris wow. Leachman said, I really want to play Ruth. And so Bogdanovich let both of them pick, and that's how they ended up where they were. And honestly, I cannot picture it any other way. Yeah, I think Ellen Burstyn's performance is fascinating in this oh, movie. Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. And just as it's time to drive away, she looks up and makes eye contact with Abilene, the clue Gulager guy who is the roughneck. They're both wearing sunglasses and there's a long moment of eye contact. And then as they're driving away, she flips him off. 
And what's so great, again, we're not spoon feeding anybody anything in this film, no, no. you know, and what her relationship, like, why is she flipping this guy off? What is the mm-hmm. relationship? What's going on there? Yeah. You know? Well, the way they look at each other, you can tell. And then her flicking him off is almost like a foreplay. We are in their house. Uh, there's a game show playing on TV. Dad's asleep. Lois is drinking and is bored. And she gets up and goes into her da- her daughter's room. Mm. So they did lots of rehearsal for this. And uh, Sybil Shepard had never acted before. And she was really scared that the older, more experienced actresses would not be nice to her. And what she says is it was totally the opposite, that oh. all of them were super helpful, were really, you know, and particularly Ellen Burstyn, like they worked through this scene over and over and over again to make yeah. her more comfortable. It's amazing what can happen, Steve, when you understand that the other person's performance, them being good in the scene makes you shine even more. Yep. You know, it's amazing when some actors just forget that concept. And so helping them to shine helps you shine because you're playing off their their stuff, which is great. Yeah, I mean... When you go to audition, you're competing with other actors. Yeah, sure. But yes. when you're in the scene, it's a team, you right. know? It's supposed to be a team, yeah. Exactly. Um, by the way, uh, speaking of the music, all of the JC music is not country music. Right. Pop. Right. Um, because he felt because she was in the wealthy family and that she wasn't so much a part of this small town that she wouldn't listen to the same music that everybody else was listening to. Yes, you hate me tonight, huh? Oh, Mama, you know I love you, but I love Dwayne, too, even if you don't like it. I don't care. I just hate to see you marry him, that's all. You wouldn't be rich anymore and in about two months. So, first of all, do you think that's true? JC doesn't care about money. Uh, I think she thinks it's true when she's yeah. saying it. Yeah. yeah. But I don't know if she actually believes it's true, yeah. And Lois's response, this is where we're going to get this glimpse into this relationship. She says... Like calling your daughter stupid. And in fact, everything that Lois does with her daughter to me is unexpected in this scene. Well, you married daddy when he was poor and he got rich, didn't he? Scared your daddy into getting rich, beautiful. Well, if daddy could do it, Dwayne could too. Not married to you. You're not scary enough. Which is, again, it's a weird line. But then what JC says is weird back because it's such an honest scene in this strange way. She says, well. You're rich and you're miserable. I sure don't want to be like you. It's a fascinating relationship, this mother-daughter relationship, because this could have gone to archetypes and caricature. Yeah. Where it's she's the you know the frustrated wife who drinks all the time and gets emotional and screams. She actually does care about her daughter. Yes. She actually does love her daughter and trying to guide her. And she knows that they have birthed a beautiful daughter. And yeah. she knows that... A beautiful daughter can absolutely get destroyed by this world. Can It isn't. Yeah, they get their pick of the litter, so to speak. But they sometimes pick the one that treats them the worst, and they end up in terrible situations. And certainly she's in a terrible situation with her husband, the mother is, uh, and, and having the affair and whatever. And also, as we find out later, having had that time, those times with Sam. So she's just trying to guide her out of this situation because she has all these options, JC does. So... She's doing her, but even when she pulled up on her and, you know, so you got to be home 15 minutes, that's her trying to take her away from a guy like um, Jeff Bridges' character, who's Dwayne, who's going really nowhere in his life. Yep. And as we see in the movie goes along, he really does not that serving the military, serving the country is not going anywhere, but certainly it's a, it's a desperation uh, decision. It seems like, cause he's not making it work as a roughneck. So these are the things that she's trying to guide her out of. And I love that the movie doesn't fall into caricature in their relationship. 
I, I think, first of all, Lois, her character is a truth teller. Yes. In this world. You know, like she is willing to speak out against the bullshit, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and a lot of what all the other characters are, are trapped in bullshit, you yeah. know, and are really lost. And one of the interesting things, by the way, is that the the movie really does follow the book. Yeah. The, and, and everything that JC does in the movie is what she does in the book. Right. I would say what the difference is, and it's a small difference because JC, let's be real clear, not a very good person, I would say. Yeah. And does things that are not nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the book, you hear more of her thought process, which doesn't make the things that she does any nicer. Yeah. But you understand how really lost she is. You slept with him? Mama. Go to the doctor sometime and arrange something so that you. Don't have to worry about babies. You do have to be careful of that. This is what's so opposite is normally the scene would be don't sleep with Dwayne. Right. And she's saying do sleep with Dwayne so you find out how unimportant it is. I thought if you slept with him a few times, you might find out that there isn't anything magic about him. Because what's so sad is that Lois kind of had something like love, Mm -hmm. but then doesn't really have faith in that and goes, look, if you're going to be miserable, it might be better to be rich and miserable. Yeah. I mean, I think that's part of what she's saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then one of the really strange moments, and, I, and I'm and i not sure why it's here, is they're sitting at the mirror at the dressing table, and she says, can I have some of that? And reaches for the perfume. Can I have some of that? Help yourself. Don't you have any? Well, yeah, but I feel like smelling good right now. Don't you ever feel like doing anything right now? What's that about? Is That's what she's asking her, right? Don't you feel like doing anything right now? Well, what, so she's saying it about the perfume. Right. Is there a bigger message here? I don't know. What What do you take from it? Well, Lois is a person who, so Lois is having an affair with Abilene. That's right. one thing, right? right? And Lois, I think Lois has sought out a lot of sex and pleasure and experiences yeah. to replace Sam the Lion. You know what I mean? Mm, yeah. She says later, I tried. I looked. Yeah. And, and there's this weird thing of like, first of all, you should follow those instincts. And second of all, I've followed those instincts and it's gotten me nowhere. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And now she's telling her daughter to go sleep with Dwayne to learn that it will get you nowhere. Right. Right. It's a lot. I mean, it's a weird scene. Yeah. But it's an, like you said, it's an honest scene, right? She's a mom yeah. who isn't like, don't tell me you're sleeping with him are you are you have you broken your vow now she's and even when uh jc pushes back and says mom i'm a virgin i'm a christian i wouldn't do that but she's just like well if you do this is what you need to be doing but yeah so she's a more no-nonsense mom which is really cool to see in this movie man. and so yeah this idea of wanting to do something now again she's trying to kind of guide jc in a way to kind of open herself up a little bit more and get a little more perspective, even encouraging her to sleep with Dwayne so she can see that it's not all that is a way of trying to get her to have more perspective about the world, grow up a little bit quicker than maybe she would normally so she can make better decisions, more um, experienced decisions, so to speak. Just remember, beautiful, everything gets old if you do it often enough. So if you want to find out about monotony real quick, marry Dwayne. It's so true. It really is. It's so funny. Like uh, I went to uh, Disneyland with uh, the family a few mm-hmm. months ago mm-hmm. and I like Disneyland. Sure. And that was such a, 
everything gets old if you do it often enough. You know, it's like, <laughs> here's all these things where these amazing entertainment experiences, yeah. but I've ridden that ride a million times, you know? I'm always blown away by people who go every weekend. I, I, I not No judgment. I just don't understand it. I would get bored out of my mind. And one thing we should say, there's a cat on the bed and Lois walks out of the room <laughs> and then JC just sweeps that cat right off the bed. <laughs> We're in the living room. Lois pours herself another drink, gets on the phone and says, I'm Wayne, you, you sleep? No. You like company? Well, I told her to drive out. See how my well is coming. Which is basically, she just said, you know, my husband's passed out. I'm going to come over and have sex with you. And he yeah. said, no. Drill hard. Better at all wells anyway. And hangs up. Yeah. Gets a shot in. And here's the thing. So so you just watched this. Yeah. Did you know who she was talking to? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just from the interaction. from Just from that shot. Yeah. Just from the middle. Listen, Steve, I've, <laughs> I've been there. So I know that moment of staring at someone who is someone else's wife when or girlfriend when the boyfriend or husband is there. Yeah, I've been there. So. That moment, I knew exactly what their relationship was. And so when he, she was making the call, I knew exactly who she was calling. And his response was perfect because Abilene, as we see in the movie, very much marches to his own drum. And when he's done with it, he's done with done. it. Done. Yeah. yeah. By the way, in the book, he's actually like the richest guy in t- one of the richest oh, really? in town. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, because he because A, he keeps winning these bets from Sam the Lion, who always bets on the school. Right. He beats everyone playing pool who bets with him. He's a pool hustler. Mm-hmm. And he's been saving all his money from being a roughneck working for uh Lois's husband. So yeah. Yeah. Lois's husband's probably the richest guy in town, and Abilene might be second. Yeah. Sonny pulls up in his pickup truck to Ruth Popper's house. This is Cloris Leachman's first scene. Yeah. I think her performance in this film is astounding. Brother, uh, nothing impressed me more than her performance in this movie. Honestly, like I know people had said, oh, this is a different Cloris Leachman. She won the Oscar for this role. But I did not anticipate what I was going to watch. She is tender. She is uh, gorgeous in a different, in a unique way. She is so full of uh, levels of emotion that you're experiencing. And I think as a 20-year-old, I would not have gotten it as an older man. Now watching the things that she is negotiating, watching the moments as they play out, seeing the face, I would say amongst all her other roles, this is her greatest work ever. And that includes Frau Blucher and all the other stuff. (laughs) Exactly. With Mel Brooks. This role is what you would have loved to have seen more of with Cloris Leachman, because she clearly has an incredible gear and whatever Peter Bogdanovich is as a person, you know, whatever he did, all the, whatever he is, he got incredible lead work in an ensemble piece from her and Ben Johnson and Ellen Burstyn in this movie. And it is fantastic to watch. I, I think she, this is a full one of the great performances I've ever seen, period. Agreed. And and she had, you know, we did a tribute to her, yep. you know, when she passed away. Yep. She's had, had an incredible career. She did all sorts of interesting things. I think there was so much more she could have done. Oh, yeah. I mean, th- this performance is, there's so much depth and complexity and pain and layers and levels. And I mean, there's just so much here. Yeah. And right now she comes out and you could just feel the pain and the, and crushing the pain down, mm-hmm. you know, and the self-containedness of it. Yeah, and think about how she's seen here, Steve. She's sitting on the couch waiting for him, yep. fully dressed, staring at the ground. Like, this is my life. 
Yep. You know, God, all the things that she's thinking about, all the decisions she could have made, there was probably other men, but this is the the path she has. Maybe she's thinking about the fact that he's sleeping with little boys. He knows about that or teenagers rather. And then he doesn't even tell her yep. that another kid is coming to pick her up. Didn't he tell you I was coming? No, he didn't mention it. I thought he was going to drive me south. So we just gets in the car and they drive. And then he is in the car waiting outside of the doctor's office and she comes out. And I think it is very obvious mm. that she is shaken Yeah, by whatever happened in there. Yeah. What did happen in there, by the way, she has breast cancer. Oh, that's what's okay. actually going on. Okay. And the thing is, is that coach knew she had breast cancer and didn't take her to the doctor. Right. Right. I mean, uh, and, and it's uh, what's so funny is it never is mentioned in the movie, but you know, that this was a serious doctor visit. You yes. Know? Yeah. She's driving. This scene was cut out of the movie. Oh, wow. Which is shocking to me. Is it something bad? No. Something. Very. Very is great. What a great description, Steve. Right? Mm. And they pull up into the garage, and he accidentally honks the horn, and she's just sitting there. Mm. And part of what is making this scene work so well is just the awkwardness of the whole thing. Yeah. You know, he's just with this woman. He doesn't know. She's obviously wrecked. Mm. He doesn't know what to do. I guess I better be getting back to school. It's nice of you to drive me. And you could see the emotions are right there. Yeah. And as she gets out of the car, she's very close to him. And very, and you know that thing where you like can feel the physical presence of someone yeah. close to you, you know, yeah. Yeah. and even sometimes feel the emotions that are coming off of them, like heat. Right. And she right. says, "Wouldn't you like to come in and have a soda if you can stand me for a few more minutes?" <laughs> if you can stand me, yeah. How does she feel about herself? Well, I I love that we're getting this foundation. For the explosion that comes yep. in the finale of the movie. This is a woman who was, who's obviously, you know, has a disposition that is a kinder, sweeter disposition, but also a feeling of uh, feeling like she's uh, a burden on people or she's annoying to people or she's whatever. And so she feels like pretty down on herself in this situation and in her relationships with men. So yeah. really it's there, um, you know, yeah, I think her ego has been so beaten down, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, that she, the, you know, if you could stand me, I think she hates herself on such a deep level at this moment. Mm. <clears throat> and, but she's also so lonely. Right. Yeah, so she has this kid come inside the house and. Would you prefer a meal? Just sit at the table. Or you can go right now if you want. I'm, I'm just scared to be alone for a minute. I'm, I'm sorry I made you come in. <laughs> <laughs> and that happens, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> you yep. all know, you know, uh, for one minute, you can be quite emotional, quite worried about something. And then the the wave crests and then you're yeah. back down and you're level and you can handle things. By the way, they wanted to use Coke. Coke <laughs> is what's in the book. And they go to Coca-Cola and Coca-Cola wants nothing to do with this movie. <laughs> so Dr. Pepper at the time was not a big national brand. It was big in Texas. After this movie, it became a much bigger national brand. Wow. And the funniest thing about it is that in 1982, Coca-Cola bought Columbia Studios, which meant they actually owned this movie <laughs> that they had refused to have their name in, you know, a decade earlier. <laughs> 
Um, and she gives him the, the Dr. Pepper and she looks at him and he looks at her and she bursts into tears. Yeah. Just full. And his, the awkward, he doesn't swallow. <laughs> like you could see, like he took the sip and now she's crying. He doesn't know what to do. Yeah. And what Bogdanovich said is that people would laugh at this scene, which is what he wanted. He wanted that sort of awkward, uncomfortable laugh. And he felt, which I agree with, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean they weren't taking the scene seriously. Mm. You know? Right. Like it's not the scene is a joke. It's that it's so uncomfortable. The only thing you can kind of do is laugh sometimes. Yeah. I guess you'll be glad when basketball season's over. Why? Well, a coach probably don't get to stay home much during football and basketball season. And what's so great is that he thinks that she's crying because she misses the coach. Right, right. And she looks at him and says, Oh, God, you don't know a thing about it, do you? <laughs> and this is the only hint. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. she, we never say what is the thing that he doesn't know a thing about. But that is what it is. I want to clarify something. This relationship is so fantastic in the movie. And now some of you who follow me might be like, but you hated licorice pizza because it was a, you know, a teenager and an older girl too. And it's like, this is different. This is a guy who's about to graduate high school. He's about to go to college. So in essence, he is on the verge of adulthood. When you're 15 or 14 or even 16, you're not quite 100% there. And yes, years make a difference. And this is an older woman who is seeking a connection, seeking some semblance of love here. She's not a frustrated 25-year-old who's angry at the world and constantly exploding and is mentally unstable. There's a difference here. There's a tenderness to this relationship that isn't there in the relationship in Licorice Pizza. And that's the difference. It's not about just, you know, oh, they're the same situations. They're not. You have to look at all the factors involved understand the nuance in terms of approaching and have an opinion about both of these relationships. So, so I haven't seen licorice pizza mm. mostly because it was so funny when you told me about it, you said, I hated this movie. I want you to see it. So you, we could talk about it. And I was like, well, you didn't give me a recommendation. That maybe it was it's true. It's true. <laughs> At some point, maybe I'll see it. But yeah. what I'll, what I'll say about it is like, what, one of the amazing things about the films of the seventies is that they don't, is that they go, here's the thing that happened. Yes. It's not judging the thing that happened. It doesn't comment on it. Right. Yeah. Trying to make a moral statement about should this have happened or should. It's like, no, things happen. And this is what happened in this situation. And and you completely understand why the characters are doing what they're doing. And it's not like you feel great about it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, like it's not a perfect situation. Right. It is a fraught situation. Yeah. By the way, as he leaves, the look that Cloris Leachman gives him. Yeah. I'm going to say I'm going to say a weird thing, okay. which is that her I try to figure out how to say it. I do not think Cloris Leachman is the most stunningly beautiful woman in history. Sure. OK. The things that happen with her face in this film, mm-hmm. there are moments where she is stunningly beautiful in yeah. this film. And that's that's what I said earlier. She's very gorgeous in this role in a unique way. And, and I guess, in essence, what you're saying is the same thing. Yeah, she's quite beautiful in certain moments. Yeah. Well, and, and there are moments where her pain, like, it's like you could see the emotion. You know what? In the, I'm going to go back to that quote. There is truth in beauty and beauty in truth <laughs> is that her truth is coming out. Yeah. And so when she feels joy and when she feels love, she is gorgeous. Yeah. Unbelievably beautiful. Yeah. And when you when she's in pain, you see all of that in her it's almost like her her face changes 
into mm-hmm. something else. Yeah. I, 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 again, it's her performance is what I'm really yeah. talking about. It's beauty and her truth. Yeah. It's a Christmas party. Yeah. <laughs> Let's meet Randy Quaid. Yeah. It's his first movie. Never acted in anything ever before. <laughs> <laughs> it shows in certain moments. <laughs> it does show. And uh, he came in and he auditioned for other stuff. And the Bogdanovich was just like, no, you're perfect for Lester. <laughs> hi, Jason. Oh, hi. Dwayne coming? Mm-hmm. Say, you know Bobby Sheen, don't you, over to sure. Wichita Falls? I met him at the country club. Apparently the rich kids are over in Wichita Falls. Well, he's going to have this midnight swimming party tonight. Want to run over there with me later? I can. I guess you heard about the last one. His folks were gone to Miami and everybody swam naked. Yeah. His folks are gone again, so it'll probably be pretty wild. Why do you think JC wants to go to this party? Uh, again, she's ex- maybe initiated by her mom. Do you ever just do something in the moment? Do something, and then maybe she's like, excellent. she's exploring things herself. Yeah. She's also, you know, about to graduate, so she's kind of figuring out what she wants to do. And so, and this, and she's not a hundred percent happy with Dwayne, even though she keeps saying she loves him. And so this exploration of doing something different, doing something new, she's, it's a sexual awakening she's going through as well. So like this is kind of spurred on maybe by the conversation with her mom, maybe from her own feelings. And so going to uh, a party like this, a it's in the rich with the rich people. So she wants to be part of that crew or explore being part of that crew possibly. And B, it's dangerous. It's risque. It's breaking out of the, you know, um, more regimented approach to her upbringing that she has had and her own uh, adherence to that regimented upbringing that she has had. So it's it, there are things that are much clearer in the book. Mm-hmm. And, and part of it is, is like when you see JC and Dwayne's relationship, one of the places is they're coming back from a basketball game, which isn't in this movie. And JC is in the back of the bus making out with Dwayne. And the reality is, is she always wants things to be public. Yeah. She doesn't, it's not just that she wants to make out with Dwayne. It's she wants people to know she's making out with Dwayne. Right. That's part of the turn on for her. Yeah. Like everything is about other people for her. Mm-hmm. And that drives her to do a bunch of stuff that's kind of maybe not such great stuff. Yeah. Gee, Lester, I'd like to go. I'm going to have a big problem with Dwayne though. Well, don't go off without me. Maybe you can. So already we know that JC is playing multiple angles. Oh, totally. Uh, This party, by the way, this was shot at the town meeting hall. And in walks Abilene with a date. And Lois walks right up to him, kisses him right on the mouth, and says, Merry Christmas. What do you mean kissing her like that? I ought to slap your face. Well, why don't you just kiss my ass? Which, by the way, that was Ellen Burstyn's line. And what's so funny is Abilene totally sides with lois basically mm. he says why don't you go get yourself a drink and he goes off and dances with lois yeah what's so crazy about this movie is how public everything is mm-hmm. and then we see ruth enter and she is tentative and she is clutching her purse and her hair is tied back in a severe manner mm-hmm. Dwayne is dancing with jc and as she's dancing with him she makes eye contact with lester and very clearly mouths the words Wait for me outside. Yeah. And he nods. <laughs> Not cool, JC. Yeah. No. <laughs> like you're dancing with your boyfriend. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, saying, this is what young people do. You know. And then there's this very strange moment. This older man walks up to Sonny and says, Hi, Sonny. Hi, Dad. How you doing? Okay. Well, that's good. See ya. 
sure. And they walk away. So this is one of the few scenes that's totally not in the book. Yeah. And this is how this conversation came to be. Peter Bogdanovich says he wrote this conversation based on something he saw between Jerry Lewis and his father. Mm-hmm. And there was a complete and total lack of communication. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Well, I mean, there's a hint of that in the Jerry, like there've been father stuff in Jerry Lewis movies and mm. his father never gets him. Right. What's, what's the one God's the film where he played in college as a running back or something. I can't remember the name of the film, but he's trying to win his father's approval. And mm. then finally in the end, after everything's fallen apart, everything's happened. His father says to him, that's my boy. And it just kind of completely changes him and he i think he even has a moment of crying in his father's arms at the end mm. of his comedy so this has been a thing for jerry lewis so yeah no surprise well, to see it being captured here well and and i think too it's like this so solidifies the fact that the father figure is sam the lion yeah right exactly oh to- not this guy totally Sybil shepherd and jeff bridges in the car um by the way uh they had a fling at the beginning of the film mm. timothy bottoms was completely obsessed with Sybil shepherd and then Peter Bogdanovich was also obsessed with Sybil Shepherd. As I said, the reality blurring the lines between the film and the reality. It's yep. there. Yeah. My Christmas present. Yeah. Oh, goodness, I didn't have to do anything. Oh, that's great. I just couldn't even look at the shop. You're lucky. I saved up for six months. And it's interesting, too, because we already had the anniversary where Sonny didn't remember the anniversary and give anything to Charlene. And now we have JC not having anything for Dwayne. And he, she, he gives her a watch. You're so sweet spending all that money on me. Oh, you're so sexy, Dwayne. This whole thing is a performance on her part. And it's funny because in the book, she's like, well, if I let him go a little farther with me, then I'll be able to leave and go to the swimming party. Right. It's all her plan. I just wish I didn't have to leave you tonight. Man, Tom. Oh, I do too. I could just kill my mother. Oh, she made me promise to go to a swim party in Wichita. Which doesn't make any sense. Like, why would mom make her promise to go to a swim party? It seems yeah. very strange. Yeah. I mean, maybe because he's the rich people and mom wants him her to be with the rich people. But Dwayne kind of sees through it almost immediately. So, yeah. Oh, you think so? So do you think he, oh. that she, he knows she's doing it on purpose? Yes. 100 percent. Mm. That's why he can't be mad at her, but he can be mad at Lester, which is yeah. why he grabs Lester. Because, you know, then then that's how it is, right? Why are you hitting on my woman? You know, that kind of thing. And meanwhile, she's sitting there in the car kind of enjoying the fact that two men are fighting over her because the shot of her is perfect uh, spotlighted. She's almost like, it's almost like she's eating popcorn in the car watching it. Don't be mad at me, Troy. I ain't mad at you, but God damn it. It's all Lester's fault. He keeps asking mama. But God damn. All I want to do is stay with the man I love. God damn and then she puts her leg over his. Yeah. And it's f- so funny. Like we talked about the boring ish nature of the first makeout scene. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This one is a sexy scene. Yes. I think. True. Very true. And it happens very slowly. And, and even though there's, and what's so funny is this one doesn't have any nudity. The yeah. previous one did. This one's actually sexier. Yeah. And she takes his hand and moves it down to her legs. Yeah. And just as he kind of moves in and starts to, kind of push her back down onto the car seat she says i gotta go so let's look at this right you talk about what kind of a character she is and the truth is before we start judging her we have to look at the situation with a little more perspective right she is what 17 in the movie probably 17 18 about to graduate 
she's got these, she's coming into her own as a woman, the early stages of woman sexuality. She's exploring all of that. She's also understanding what kind of a weapon sex can be Mm -hmm. in her situation because it's a patriarchal world. Uh, And especially in a small town in Texas, for the love of God. So she is kind of using what she is using in certain moments to figure out what she wants. Mm-hmm. And if men are going to fall at her feet, is it really her fault? And so I'm, I'm, just, I'm discovered as I've gotten older that it's like, dude, you got to take responsibility for your own actions. And if a, a woman is this beautiful and you're willing to put yourself in this position, especially when you know that you might be out of her league or that other people are telling you it's not the right situation. If she ends up breaking your heart or ends up leaving you, even though um, Eileen Brennan's character says that to says that to Sonny and not to Dwayne, it's still a part of the movie. And so her kind of using what she wants to do or figuring out what she wants to do, this is the game, you know? And so if you're going to go after, as, as Dr. Hook once said, when you're in love with a beautiful woman, you watch your friends and this is the game. And so I think it's actually a really interesting nuanced approach that they're taking to a character that could easily be seen as just a woman who's using men to get what she wants. There's much more going on here, which I think is fair to point out if we're going to also focus on Sonny and Dwayne's journeys as well. I, I think those are great points. And I think hmm. what, what it's not like Sonny's behavior is so great. Exactly. You know what I mean? Or Dwayne's, yeah. Nor Dwayne's behavior is so great. Like there's a lot of bad or Lois's bad behavior. Yeah. Abilene's they're all making bad choices. Yes. I think JC's is very uh, conscious, mm-hmm. you know, like she is no, she, I won't say she knows, she knows what she's doing in the sense that she has chosen to do this exact thing with Dwayne in yeah. order to get it away from Dwayne and go to this other place and get naked. Yeah. It's definitely on purpose. But the other thing is, I don't know who the saddest person in this movie is, Yeah, but JC's in the running, you know, like this isn't going to get her anywhere. Yeah. There's a lot of pain, even though she's, as you said, she's discovered she has this power. She's using this power. Yeah. But her values are so messed up that she's taking herself to some strange places. And and the thing too is like, I don't have a problem with her being whatever she's into in terms of sexually, what turns her on. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, that's whatever turns you on, turns you on. Right. And clearly this thing she's doing is part of that. Yeah. But Dwayne is not happy. And he runs up and grabs Lester. You wouldn't ask my girl for a date. You turn me loose. I'll turn you loose anytime you're ready to fight. By the way, Randy Quaid says he learned a ton from Jeff Bridges. Jeff I Bridges bet. had a lot more experience, and it was really helpful to him as an actor. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, an older guy comes along and breaks them up. It's the sheriff. Run along here, what you call. I can't stand here all night protecting your shoe shine. <laughs> and then he runs off. Yeah. And the sheriff just goes, well, Merry Christmas. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the damn thing. It's great. Now we're inside in the kitchen, and there's Sunny in the foreground, and Ruth is cleaning up in the kitchen in the background, because you know she hasn't had any fun at the party. No, no, no. She's just working. Oh, hi. Want to help me? Okay. It's actually there's a lot of oneers in this movie. It's a lot of everything in one shot, mm-hmm. um, which is very much Bogdanovich relating to Orson Welles, and this shot kind of tracks with him as he moves into the kitchen. Oh, I did have. We broke up a couple months ago. And I love this line. He says, I guess we broke up because we didn't like each other much to begin with. (laughs) I think he's exactly right. Yes. I hope you're not sad about it. I don't think Charlene's near nice enough for you. 
did you see where this was going? Yeah. Oh, immediately. Yeah. As soon as she asked him to help, mm-hmm. that and when she asked, look, when a woman asks you inside, I just want to put it out there. When a woman asks you inside, and you know, there's there's possibility, she's figuring it out. And then when she asks him to help, that's I thought that we're heading towards this direction. And then when they're throwing the trash out, um, you could feel the electric chemistry between them as you're watching the movie man it's incredible yeah and we're in sort of a low angle they're dumping Mm -hmm. the trash and they're very close to each other and they look at each other and what's so great about it too is they both know you know what i mean right exactly like it is a hundred percent mutual it's a long kiss Mm -hmm. and if you watch cloris leachman's so much plays on her face of fear and release and gentleness and a feeling of safety yeah. and the kiss ends and then she says will you drive me to the clinic again next week and he excited now goes well you bet <laughs> and then kisses her really aggressively yeah and what's funny is the moment he becomes really aggressive you could see the tension come back mm-hmm. into her body mm-hmm. and then you could see her give over to it you know what i mean and then they get hit by the headlights we better not fall here and she goes away from him, but smiles at him. And yeah. this is where I'm talking about. Cloris Leachman suddenly looks stunning. Yeah. Yeah. That smile is absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Agreed. We're at a fancy house. Uh, Frank Marshall, who was the location scout, he had a real hard time finding this location because hmm. he needed an indoor pool. But he also needed an indoor pool where people were willing to have a bunch of kids be naked in a movie. <laughs> at. And finally, they found it at a spa in Wichita. Mm. Peter Bogdanovich asked the casting director, you need to get me a bunch of young people that don't mind being naked. And apparently, here's what he said. He said the whole shooting of this, he was totally embarrassed, Peter. Mm. Um, but the kids were all just running around having a good time. <laughs> the song is, oh, get out of here and don't come back no more. Which is a funny song. Oh, get out of here with that. And don't come back no more. Oh, get out of here. And we walk in, and there's all these naked people. Hey, look, new victim. And you see Sybil Shepherd react to it. Hi, JC. And Bobby Sheen just gets up and walks straight to her naked, and the camera is framed just above waist. (laughs) But you see her eyes flick down to look and then look away. It's perfectly shot. And then you're in what, you know, normally we would talk about an over the shoulder, an OTS. Yeah, this yeah. is clearly an OTB. Yeah. It's an over the butt shot. <laughs> Looking at Sybil Shepherd. Glad you can make it. We're dressed informally, as you can see. Hi, you know, any, any. And this woman gets out of the pool completely naked. Yeah. And it's all cut really fast. Yeah. And this is, you could totally see like Orson Welles in Touch of Evil. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. The yeah. way it's cut. And I think too, because we've had all these wonders where things are really slow and it's all in one shot. The fact that we're cutting fast makes it all very jarring, yeah. you know? And you, so you feel Sybil Shepherd's discomfort in this moment. You want to join the club? And she, in a very soft voice says, Sure. Well, you got to get undressed out there on the diving board. So everybody gets to watch. Yeah, I'll do it first time. That's the rule. Yeah, I did it last Easter. Okay. This scene is a, a scene that I don't think people would make today. You know, it is so, hmm. there is something sexy about it. And there's something totally not. 
It is really uncomfortable. Yeah. It also, you can see that you could see a whole bunch of different emotions playing with JC in mm-hmm. this moment. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. I think this is, um, I don't, I don't, I don't recall feeling sexy about it. I think Sybil's so beautiful um, in this movie that you can feel attraction, but it's quickly. Um, it's replaced. a weird scene. Yeah. It's quickly replaced by repulsion in that because they're all just so casual about being naked, which is totally fine. I mean, live your life. Yeah. But the fact that you make people go through this ritual of publicly taking all their clothes off it's almost cult-like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and remember, this is the beginning of the 70s. The cult situation is, is doing it. But it's almost cult You've got to strip yourself of all your personal belongings so that you can be part of this thing with us that is only allowing certain people inside of it. And this idea that this is how we express our truth is to be fully naked with each other in a pool. Oh, and hey, my little brother is down here in snorkel gear or whatever to, to kind of mess with you so this idea of promenading a woman out onto a a, a board and having her do it we don't see randy do it because randy's already done it apparently in the past lester has but seeing sybil do it who is the beautiful woman of the film to have her do that i thought was a little bit of a violation but in a way you're supposed to feel that way because yeah this is how the rich people are they want to kind of embarrass you a little bit to see if you'll be part of their club you know so ah, yeah, it just was a rough watch. It's it's rough. It, there's a th- that's why there's so many things going on. Mm. Well, and I'm sure you have how many things things did you go through with groups of friends that said, okay, you have to shotgun this beer or you have to yeah yeah you know it's like you know working at the campus like you have to jump off this cliff into the lake yeah. and everyone's gonna want you know there's these yeah. things where you have to go through the ritual that's scary to be part of the club. I had to and jump some on. of them and, and and nudity and things like that. Those are part of those things, you know, whether yeah. it's fraternity hazing or so, you know, like yeah. the, and, and so to me, it was like, again, this was real. Yeah. I felt that this, and the thing too, about JC's character is you can tell she is both scared and insecure and put on the spot and part of her likes it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. She, this is by titillated by it. Yeah. Well, and that she wants to be in this club. Yes. She right. wants to be one of these people that is wandering around naked. And this is the this is the price. The way it's shot, I think, is just perfect mm-hmm. in, in terms of the storytelling, in terms of her nervousness. Like, I love little details like she can't decide whether to take off the top or the bottom yeah. and goes back and forth. Yeah. Um, that is directly in the book. And it's per- that is perfect filmic storytelling. There's no words. You see what it is? The fact that there's a naked kid yeah swimming around under her yeah the brother yeah Yeah. the fact that she kind of loses her footing and plops down on the board and then you know and the the moment of she takes off her underwear and throws it in the kid's face because he gets too close to her which kind of sells everyone to her side and they all applaud and she gets in the water yeah and and it's funny um peter bogdanovich said and it's totally true when sybil shepherd is wet she looks like a kid yeah, I mean, like yeah, her face, yeah. she looks really young. Yeah. And what has happened is she's, just, and she's, there's a huge smile on her face because mm-hmm. she got through it. She got yep. through this thing. Right. And what does she notice is on her wrist? The watch. The, the yeah. watch. She killed Dwayne's watch. <laughs> I mean, we couldn't get more symbolic yeah. than that. And she smiles at Bobby Sheen, mm-hmm. this other guy. A couple other things about this. Sybil really did believe that the nudity was necessary for the film. Okay. She was sold on that. But, 
she's a well-known model, a cover girl. Yeah. And she's very concerned about naked pictures of her getting out. Right. And so she continually was pestering Peter Bogdanovich and the producers with a document that would make them promise that there would be no still photography and no photographs would be released. And they continually said, oh, maybe later. I don't know. I don't think so. No, maybe later. And finally, Bogdanovich yelled at her and said, if you ever bring up that again, I'll never give you another piece of direction. Wow. So she shut up about it. And the there were still photos taken. Mm. They were leaked. They did end up in Playboy. And she spent years suing Playboy, finally settled out of court like five years later. But she is the person because of this that got SAG to change the general contract that would protect actors and actresses from nude photos. Nude photos cannot be taken of them without consent. That's because of Civil Shepherd. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Male directors, man. Yeah. Right. Well, and this is, and so, and again, you talk about paralleling the movie. Yeah, exactly. He forced her to do this thing and, you know, that was the price that she had to pay and took something from her. Yeah. Now, I don't know that Bogdanovich took the pictures or I don't know who leaked them. I don't know anything like that. But yeah. Yeah. But you imagine if he was in love with her, as Marion Doherty said from the first time he saw her, he'd want to protect her from a situation like this. You'd think. Unless you're a lecherous mother. Anyway. Yeah. That's being said, yeah. But she did date him for seven years, so yep. was there a kind of a Stockholm thing with that? I don't know. I mean, I think what we could say, and in this movie, people are weird. Yeah, people are weird. Yeah. Actors and artists are weird. We're back with Dwayne, and and they're outside the party drinking. Sonny walks up. Let's all go do something. Good idea. Why don't we try and run up some pussy? Oh, you wouldn't know what to do with it if we found some. They even talk about fucking some heifers. Which I didn't know was a thing. I thought sheeps were the thing. I did not and, know cows were the thing. And by the way, in the book, there's a lot more about that. Whoa, really? Yikes. Oh, yeah. I mean, they don't actually, you don't see them do it, but it was very clear that they have done it. Yeah. Which just sounds like, oh, wow, this is weird. Yeah, what we ought to do is buy Billy here a piece of ass. Yeah, we ought to let him die first. Yeah. Poor Billy. And Sonny does say, I don't think we should try anything like that. But he doesn't try that hard to stop them. And they talk about going to get Jenny Sue. And there's a clear reaction that maybe Jenny Sue is not the uh, not the best. Shit. Heifer's better than Jimmy Sue. And then we cut to this car. There's a woman in the car. Her leg is just kind of sticking out the front. And she says, Get the stupid little thing in here. I ain't got all night. How are you feeling watching this? Ah. <sighs> Uh, really uncomfortable but also i understand i mean these are teenage kids and um teenage boys and it's not like they're all brought up with normal you know kind of emotional vocabulary to have at that age i'm not excusing it but certainly as you said the film doesn't comment on things that happen within it it presents it and you can make up your own mind and then this thing they're presenting a rite of a passage that we've seen in other movies as yep. well this idea even Biloxi Blues yep. had this scene in it the, in the play and also in the film with Matthew Broderick of you know popping your cherry with a prostitute and so in their fucked up minds they thought they were doing Billy a favor uh, when in fact they were using him for their own entertainment which is terrible well that's the I mean first of all it is very clear that prostitution is not a 
that's just a normal thing. Yes. You know, that's it. I, my assumption is basically all of them have slept with a prostitute at one point or another before this. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing. Okay. The, the second thing is, I think, I think they have convinced themselves that they're doing a good thing when in fact, a big part of it is they're entertaining themselves. Right. Yes. right. And it's interesting to me that this, what is the scene that's right before is it's JC stripping on the diving board. Mm-hmm. And now we go to, taking this kid who has obviously some mental issues and stripping him and putting him in with a prostitute. This is the dumbest thing I ever seen. He don't even know what to do. Come on, Billy. What about me? Damn it, put it to her, boy. Get in Billy. Come on, Billy. Screw it to her, boy. And it doesn't go well, and she gets angry at him. God damn you stupid little thing. Couldn't even wait. Look at this mess. And they push him out of the car half naked. He's bleeding because she smacked him. Mm-hmm. and Sonny goes in to help. And you can see, I think, Sonny knows what they did was terrible. Yeah. And he feels terrible about it. And again, we have this moment of the hat, is that he takes Billy's hat and he puts it around on his head, and Billy just looks in a daze. Mm-hmm. They drive up to the pool hall. Sam walks out of the pool hall, and Billy tries to run past him to get yeah. inside. Mm-hmm. Sam stops him, sees this bloody nose. Which one of you bloodied his nose? I think Ben Johnson is amazing in this scene. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. He has such strength about him and such simplicity in his performance. And Jeff Bridges, Dwayne, is in the backseat of the car, and he ducks down so Sam does not see him. What happened, Sonny? There weren't none of us, Sam. And then this other guy, and I forget his name, but he's an idiot, and he says, no, it was Jimmy Sue. Jimmy Sue? How'd he get messed up with her? And they explain the situation and there's a pause and Sam gives them a very hard look. And then he says, you boys can get on out of here. I don't want to have no more to do with you. Scaring a poor, unfortunate creature like Billy, just so as you could have a few laughs. I've been around that trashy behavior all my life. I'm getting tired of putting up with it. So tell me about this. What is, what's going on with Sam here? I've been around that kind of trashy behavior all my life. Well, Sam's always Sam is like the progressive in town, you know, and that's how I've seen him from the first moment of the film. He has a connection with the young kids. He respects it. He gets it. Billy is his own. I think Billy's his son. And so there's even, he's having to be even more softer about the world because of having to deal with the limitations of his son. And so there's an approach here that's different. And so watching the fact that he's seen these young kids do this shit to his son, it reminds him probably of some of the people in town that he knew when they were teenagers and some of the shit they pulled uh, to and got away with and ended up becoming elders of the town that never comes back on him. I think there's fairness in that, right? There's There can be understanding as well because of the time and whatever, but if they continue those patterns, of devaluing people into their adult lives, then you can go back and look at those things as a teenager. And I think that's what he is kind of saying with that comment is that, you know, I've been around that all my life. He's talking about this town and the people in this town who have treated other people who are different as um, something for a joke or for their own entertainment. Uh, And he's making a stand here in this moment with these young kids about it. 
So I know a little bit more because of reading the book. Yeah, sure. Um, so Billy's not his son, by the way. Oh, okay. Um, it seems uh, like he is. My bad. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think what Sam has done mm-hmm. is that he has adopted, in a lot of ways, Billy and Sonny and mm-hmm. Dwayne and a bunch of the other young people. Like he has said, so, so what his backstory actually is, is that he had two sons, both of whom died. And his wife went crazy and I think killed herself after the death of his two sons. Yeah. And so he, I think with him is he's made the choice of, I'm going to be a good person in the community. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I'm going to take care of these people that need taken care of. And I'm going to be kind and forgiving and gentle with all of them. And I think this just crossed the line. He's been, you know what I mean? Like you're, you're, you're being a good person over and over and over again. And then you watch how people mistreat and hurt each other. And at this point, he's just like, I'm done, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And he says in the simplest way, in a way so simple that I think you don't even grasp at first, the gravity of what he's saying. Now you can stay out of this pool hall, out of my cafe and my picture show too. I don't want no more of your business. We didn't mean for anything bad to happen, Sam. You didn't even have the decency to wash his face. So first of all, the picture show and the pool hall, that's all the entertainment in town Mm -hmm. and the cafe. So him saying, I don't want any of your business. That is a big deal. Yeah. First of all. And then man, you see it hit sunny. Yeah. You didn't even bother to wash his face. I mean, that's a, that's a strong statement. Yeah. By the way, the scene ended here in the original cut and didn't show their reactions to this. Oh, wow. Yeah, which yeah, I, I can't understand. And then, of course, Dwayne sits up in the back seat and says, "Lucky I fell asleep. I'd hate not to be able to shoot no pool." See, Dwayne ain't no Dwayne ain't no nice guy either. Dwayne no. purposely no. slid down in the seat so Sam wouldn't see him. Even though later, both Sam and um, Eileen Brennan's character know that he was there. We're at Ruth's house, and clearly they made a plan. Sonny, Sonny comes in with her. I'm sure, he won't come. You know he won't. He's just starting back. There is an awkward kiss, and then they start taking off their clothes. <laughs> By the way, and you know this from acting, as soon as you had to, you had to work stuff out. Is they needed to make sure that they were the right amount of naked at the same time, <laughs> yeah. so they had to time how they take off the clothes. And I love it's all so awkward. And I love the moment where yeah. she's like pulling her slip over her top, and it gets caught, and uh, and she takes a second to. It's just embarrassing for her to get it off. And they get down to their underwear, mm. and here's the thing. First of all. Tim really didn't want to do this scene. Tim Bottoms. Oh wow, he was—I don't know—and maybe he was just embarrassed by the whole thing. Yeah, you know, he's in real life at this point. He is twenty or nineteen years old, depending on yeah. you know how much post-production there was. And she's in her mid forties. So yeah, right. There, it's there weird. Maybe some nervousness here. Yeah. So and, he, and they were gonna get totally naked. Oh wow. And she, and he, Tim refused to do it, and so they came up with a plan of that they would. Strip down to their underwear. They'd get in bed. They had underwear planted in the bed. Mm. And then they would just throw that out of the bed, even though they're still really in their underwear right. underneath the sheets. So, and that was, and, and Cloris Leachman and Peter Bogdanovich came up with that plan. And they do it and they get in bed and either on purpose or just because she was so in character, yeah. Cloris Leachman didn't grab the fake underwear. She just got naked under the bed. <laughs> And they start to fool around. He gets on top of her and the bed is squeaky. Yeah. And that squeak is so powerful Mm -hmm. in this scene Mm -hmm. and the camera's on her 
And she's kind of looking around, and it's very clear she's not enjoying it. And she feels herself starting to cry. And then he, the way they do this is so amazing. He realizes or thinks he realizes that she's crying and starts to look at her. And then she grabs him close to her, mm-hmm. I think, so he doesn't, can't see her crying. Yes. Then they finish, or he finishes. He gets off of her. Yeah. And she says, I'm sorry I cried. Just as scared, I guess. And Sonny thinks he's scared about the coach. Right. But that is not what she's scared about. No, not scared of that. Scared I could never do this, I guess. Can't seem to do anything about crying about it. How could you like me? Interesting, right? Well, I don't know if I 100% agree with you that she's not enjoying it. I don't think this was about enjoying or not enjoying. Mm. As she says at the end, this was about her doing this to prove either something to herself or to re or to find out if she could still do it, as she says. So, and so the crying is just, I think she's going through. And as we said, in real life in her mid forties, but also the character mid forties, a bit of a midlife crisis, like where she belongs and she wants to be loved and she wants to be uh, cared about and she wants to be found sexually attractive. And so in that moment, when she's having all these feelings and these emotions and the crying, you know, I've been with a, a woman who yeah. has cried during sex, uh, and that's and there's a lot going on, you know, and you just yeah. never know what it is, and stuff gets accessed, and you kind of have to navigate that, you know, and so it's it, that's the thing, and so I see that here in this scene uh, as well, you know. I think those are great points, and I think what it points to is the the unknowable nature of of this moment. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, Sonny can't begin to fathom what's going on with this woman who has so much more experience and so much more emotion and so much more stuff, you know? And I think she is, and again, it's just Cloris Leachman's performance is so incredible. Yeah. It's just, you're just looking at her face and there's just so much there. Um, Dwayne is playing pool in the pool hall because he did not have his rights revoked. Yeah. Um, It's sunny drives by this shot was also cut out of the movie, which is Mm. shocking to me. Because it's so important to see Sonny not being able to go to those places, yeah. movie theater in the pool hall. Yeah. And he drives out of town and he gets out of his truck and he's thinking and he heads into the diner and Genevieve is alone there. What have you been doing? You lost weight. Ain't had your cheeseburgers in weeks. <laughs> now, he's been banned from the from the diner. Right. Come on, I'll fix you one. Even though that wasn't a very nice thing y'all done to Billy. So, again, the whole town knows everything. Right. You know, small town. One thing I know for sure, a person can't sneeze in this town without somebody offering him a handkerchief. What you mean? Now, she is giving him a message, mm-hmm. and he is at first not hearing it. Just an awful small town for any kind of carrying on. Don't forget to put some onions on. And some people got a lot of guns. Now he's starting to get it. Yeah. So what's the message she just gave him? I mean, just talking about the situation with Cloris Leachman. He's just, yeah. you know, be careful. Be careful yeah. about what you're doing. What's so great about this film, too, and, and and really setting it in a small town in Texas like this, there's not that clutching pearls, man. Yeah. It's very much like the, this is a hard scrabble life. This is a hard scrabble town. You have to eke out a living as best you can. 
And so the normal judgments, the normal kind of approaches that we are, the highfalutin idealistic approaches to the world don't really apply here. Not that they shouldn't apply, but they don't really apply because the reality of the situation is different. And so her basically warning him, hey, the things that are going on here, just be careful. The town elders could get a whiff of this and there could be some issues, man. Just letting you know. Well, and Coach Popper's got a lot of guns. Yeah, he does. Well, and, and the, th- the thing I th- like about it is that this movie accepts that people are weird. Yes. We are fucked up and lonely and desperate and sad and horny and trying to figure stuff out and stumbling through life and making mistakes. And that is what it is. Yeah. As opposed to we are people going on a good journey towards a destination that makes sense. And this that's not what this movie is saying. You know, I'll go even farther. It's not that people are weird. This is normal. Yeah. This is the normal. Yes. Whatever Norman Rockwell nonsense you've got in your head. This is the actual normal stuff. Yeah. And we hear the door open and there is Sam, the lion and Billy. You know, you watch this movie and you watch certain ways that Ben Johnson has framed Steve and you go, how was this not always the case? Mm. You know, and as Ford said to him, you want to John Wayne's psychic for the rest of your life. You watch Ben Johnson and you go, man, how was he not a lead more often in these older Western movies? How was he not a star himself? You know, yeah. just kind of look at this and go, damn, man, it would have been so interesting to see these colors, these levels as a lead in some Westerns for Ben Johnson. It would have been fun to see. There's so much in his face. Yeah. There's so much in his presence and his stance. And he's looking at Sonny. I love, by the way, that Billy just runs to Sonny. Yeah. You know, because he loves, I mean, the, the feeling yeah. that Billy has towards Sonny is super clear. Mm-hmm. And they do the little thing with the hat. And Sam gives him a very hard look. Just giving the say hello to Jennifer. Sam looks over at her. She's got the burger in her hand. And I love that she very pointedly yeah. puts the burger down on the table. That is a clear <laughs> statement. And Sonny starts to head out. And Sam says, Sonny, food's getting cold. That I love, I, I love it so much because it is, it's saying everything without saying it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're right. He sits down to eat his food and Billy joins Sonny and Genevieve is smiling. I love that Sam goes, What are you grinning about? Chicken fry me a steak and try to use meat this time. <laughs> By the way, have you ever had a chicken fried steak? Yeah. That is a weird food. Every two weeks in high school, we had, or in middle school and high school, we had chicken fried steak. It's a, it's such a funny like. No, we're the the fried chicken was not unhealthy enough. <laughs> <laughs> Let's fry a steak. My dad loved chicken fried steak. Oh, that was, tough, man. They're delicious. I like that. And Sam sits down with him, and he says, "I heard about the ball game last night. One hundred and twenty-one to fourteen. Must be for near record." And which, by the way, they show this whole basketball game in the oh, book. It's oh, really wow. ridiculous. <laughs> Sam, I'm sorry. And of course, he's saying, I'm sorry about Billy. Right, of course. And Sam says, I reckon you all need blessed. Because <laughs> he's taking, he's he knows it's an apology about Billy. Right, right. But he's taking the apology as an apology about the basketball game. Right, because to him, it's settled. As soon yeah. as he said, your food's getting cold. The issue's settled. settled. There's no need yeah. to go. That, they bring the point. That is just great filmmaking. To yeah. Me. Yeah. Great dialogue. Yeah. So I think at this moment, 
Sonny and Sam, they've made up. I think things are probably going to be okay with all these relationships, right? <laughs> and so maybe we could just take, I don't even know if we have to do the rest of the film. That's just true. like, let Good it go. Point. You know, what? I don't think anything really important happens. And they lived happily ever after. <laughs> they <lived> happily ever <laughs> after. Well, if you want to find out how they lived ever after, you're going to have to tune into next week. Cause I think this is a, Good point to end part one of our exploration of Peter Bogdanovich's The Last Picture Show. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this film. You can visit us on all the social media, Facebook, the Twitter, where it's Cine underscore files. It's the Cinephiles podcast on Instagram. Subscribe at all the usual places. Leave your five-star reviews, please, on Apple Podcasts. If you want to buy or stream The Last Picture Show along with every other movie we've ever reviewed, you can do it on cinephiles.net. You can support the show at patreon.com slash the cinephiles. And if you want to reach me, you can do it at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram, and you can Star Trek it up at Enterprise Incidents. John, how would people find you? You can always find me at The Roca Says on Twitter and on Instagram and TikTok now as well. Uh, on Twitch, The Outlaw Nation, been doing some watch-alongs of the NFL play playoff games and uh we've had a bunch of people joining me to have some fun with it so if you're in the mood to do that on twitch feel free to do that as well and then uh my other podcasts the top 10 and the geek buddies that are out there on my youtube channel youtube.com slash john roca says and that's it for this week we will be back next time to conclude our exploration on the last picture show right here on the cinephiles 